Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, spring Jack, and I want to thank all of you loyal listeners for tuning back in to yet another episode, the first one of this new year. To all new listeners, if you have been described as having a thin skin, being a pussy, being a bitch, being soft, I've been told that I'm rather offensive, sometimes rude, and that I lack a proper bedside manner for the type of podcast that I do. So this is me telling you that you may find this show offensive, and I don't fucking care. But I do care. So I'm going to give you this short amount of time to turn the podcast off if you've ever been described as any of those things. Anyway, so today's episode, I... I'm certain you guys have heard the expression, judging a book by its cover. I went on creepypasta.com and I am judging stories by their titles and their cover photo. I've never read these. I'm going to read them to you. We're going to read them together. And I'm either going to talk merciless shit about the terrible writing style and lack of punctuation, or I'm going to be quite frightened and make strange squealing noises, which I know you like that. Also, I'd like to take this time to let you know that all commercials in this ad in this show are fake ads and are the creative property of Rockstar Games. Nobody fucking sponsors me, please. I'm a fucking PR nightmare. And I prefer it that way. So I run fake ads to break up the show. But I am not... Despite the fact that I'm devilishly clever, I am not devilishly clever enough to create and produce my own fake company's ads. And that being said, let's get this show kicked off proper with one of those. Being a parent isn't easy, but it just got a little easier with the Trackify wireless location system. I watch a lot of cable TV news, so I know that everyone is out to abduct and kill my children. So I planted a microchip in their brains. Now, nobody will molest them but me. Trackify shows your child's exact location at any time. And Trackify's innovative GPS locator chip is implanted at the base of their head. So there's nothing to lose. But Trackify isn't just for kids. Getting microchipped is great for people like me who have Alzheimer's and wander into traffic. Broccoli highlighter. Trackify. Love just got a little easier to keep track of. Now see, that commercial sounds like a ridiculous concept until you think about the fact that there was a bill that nearly passed proposed by the government saying that they wanted to uh, force everyone to have those tracking chips in their driver's licenses that got voted down impressively fast and in impressive numbers. And then not six months later, every fucking financial institution in the country forces you to have a chip in your debit card. <laughs> Coincidence? Maybe. I don't know. I can't read. So what do I know? Anyway, this first story that I found says, I know the reason why so many people commit suicide on New Year's, and it's terrifying. It's written by Brandon Willis. And if he really does know the reason... Touché. I usually spend every New Year's celebration at home with a bottle of liquor as my only dependable company. Fuck yeah. Last year, I was doing just that while binge-watching Supernatural. Alright, you lost me again. I remember checking my phone to see what time it was. It was 11.57pm. By then, my vision was blurring. Uh, 
and I was well on my way to completing my tradition of getting shit-canned fucking wasted for New Year's. All right. Respect. My family had told me for years that they were concerned. They said I spent too much time alone and that I needed to go out and just do something. All right, I'm with you. Suicide had come to mind numerous times over the years due to the shit that life throws your way. Multiple failed relationships, dead-end jobs, and the possibility of good things that just end up blowing up in your face. It takes a toll on your mental health after a time. Perhaps. Last year was no exception. I had found out a few months before that my girlfriend had cheated multiple times and had also told people about it. Does it... What does telling people have it... What does that change anything? Oh, and she also thought it was particularly hilarious making crude remarks like he's so stupid he can't even tell what's going on. Well, honesty without compassion, I guess, is cruelty, but... <laughs> eh, okay. I drink more. It was out of the corner of my blurry vision that I saw a black figure standing by my door. Come on now. I tried to focus, but I was too deep in the bottle to do that. I just saw this out-of-focus, black, human-shaped thing. We get it, buddy. Do, do it. You know you want to. You know none of it's worth it. You know life is pointless and none of it matters. Why not do it? Nobody loves you. Nobody cares about you. Not even Carrie. She never loved you, never cared about you, and you're just going to repeat the same mistake for the rest of your life. Why bother? The voice that said it was deep and gravelly, sounding a bit distant, like a radio station on the verge of cutting out. While the voice spoke, I felt the energy drain out of me and paralysis set in. I can remember mumbling back, Yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter. I should just kill myself and end it. How about a knife? That one on the counter over there. It looks sharp enough and you could end your pathetic life in no time. Yes, I replied. At this point, I felt like I was in a dream that I had no control over my actions. I shuffled into the kitchen, grabbed that knife, and plunged it into my wrist. A for effort, buddy. I woke up in the hospital. My friend Colin had come over. And because he had a key, he was able to get in. Hmm. He found me on the kitchen floor in a puddle of blood. He was a night shift nurse at a nearby hospital, and his quick thinking, unfortunately, saved my life. <laughs> Brutal. I was later admitted to a psych ward. Yeah. With my cooperation, uh, I thought I had gone completely insane. They diagnosed me with having a schizoaffective disorder with severe depression. I spent the next two months rebuilding myself mentally and came out feeling reinvigorated. Well, that's good. Good for you, buddy. Uh, it was around Halloween, and I was browsing around Reddit and found a post called, What's the Creepiest Phenomenon with No Explanation? I'm very much into the supernatural and believe in most spiritual beliefs about the afterlife, demons, ghosts, so on, but I'm not religious. I think the two kind of go hand in hand. Maybe not. I saw a reply to the post with a link that said, How about the mass amount of people that commit suicide on New Year's and the survivors they claim to have seen a tall black figure telling them to do it? With a link to provide proof of the phenomena chills covered my body and I felt all my muscles twitch. The memory of the events of that night came back. The black figure. The commands it gave. The way it told me to do it. I posed this question to the post. What's it want, yo? Someone replied, well from what I gather it's been talked about for centuries amongst various cultures in one form or another. Another worldly spirit that comes back once a year to gather enough souls to fill itself for another year like a soul-eating bear back to hibernate or back from hibernation. 
This is when I went down the rabbit hole of Google and researched more into this ting. About 25 pages back, I found a result that was close to what I was looking for. It was on an independent paranormal research group's website, which I will keep anonymous. Okay. And the article answered all the questions that I seem to have. The earliest mention went back to Roman times, and it was simply referred to as tenebrous, written as a name, not as a description, but it translates that into a Latin word that means darkness. Tenebrous was said to appear at winter solstice and once convinced an entire legion, which I found out was uh, 5,000 legionnaires, to rush off a high cliff while they were pursuing a Germanic army, and nearly all of them had died. Julius Caesar found out and demanded a massive sacrifice back in Rome, written by him to appease this beast, Tenebris. Seems a bit redundant if your legionnaires already killed themselves, doesn't it? A few days later, I went back to the Reddit post and saw dozens of people who had commented saying they'd seen it. I messaged a few of them and we started a group chat on Discord. Oh no. The number grew to over 250 by December 1st, and we all had had similar experiences. One guy was walking on the sidewalk in New York when he saw a figure in an alleyway and an overwhelming urge to leap in front of a taxi uh, came over him, but he was able to fight it off. Another man was on a cruise ship and saw the dark shape in the water, demanding he jump overboard to be with it, which he did. He said he had one foot over the rails when the attendant grabbed him seconds before he could leap. A woman who was suffering from a heroin addiction was nearly coaxed into taking a lethal dose by said shadow person. All sounds kind of familiar. I have no idea what to do about it, but it is real. I've seen it, and I'm terrified it'll come back this New Year's. It's a few days before New Year's, and I'm already starting to feel its presence. Already starting to feel its presence. I haven't moved my ass from this couch in days, and there's plenty of alcohol. It usually hits hard this time of the year as it's just a reminder of how miserably lonely I am. Colin, my buddy, is out of state with his family this year, and the rest of my friends are also preoccupied, so so much for that. Guess I'll sulk around my apartment, you know, keep traditions alive. <sighs> Children are our future, all of our future. And of course, we want the future to be bright. We want the future to be healthy. We want the future to be perfect. And for those who can afford it, we believe we have the right to demand perfection and control nature. That's where Eugenics Incorporated International comes in. Morality is none of our business. Making sure you have the right baby is. Hi, I'm Dr. Steven Von Singer. You're discerning. You wouldn't accept the wrong car or the wrong job or the wrong house. Why on earth should you accept the wrong child? Visit Eugenics Incorporated International and get the perfect baby. Satisfaction guaranteed, subject to medical tests and unforeseen accidents. Visit us on the web at eugenicsincorporated.com and start designing your perfect baby today. Well, on the subject of eugenics, this next one is, next one is called Only Following Orders by Cantuno. The story you're about to read is one that has been for the last 70 years left to wither in the hearts of the few that recall it. Of the twelve of us present that day, only I remain, and my own end is rapidly approaching. I write this tale with shaky hand, solely, in order to console myself in my final moments, and I hope anyone who may discover this document will refrain from passing judgment upon me or my comrades until the end. Oh, shit. 
I distinctly recall sitting in a tent with my fellow soldiers just outside of Berlin, huddling around a shortwave radio listening to the trials of our nation's greatest foes. They feigned insanity, pled guilty, gave harrowing accounts of their every detail and every single crime committed by their hand or under their watch. My favorites, however, were the ones who pled innocent, the ones who said I was following orders. I had to wonder what I would say had the war ended with Moscow under the Iron Eagle. What would I say if asked to justify my actions during the war? I believe I know exactly what I would say, and it would be the same thing as the men that were being jeered at by the Red Army, excluding the ten of us gathered in the tent. You see, the two lucky of us had already died. It was a quiet village in eastern Germany, December 24th, 1944. We were under, under orders to seek out any soldiers lying in wait to ambush the main column of the army. Our sergeant, a guy named Ivan, took the lead. Oh, I guess he's Russian. The rest of us falling in behind him. It was raining heavily, obscuring our vision, and a sharp crack jerked me to attention. And I was immediately felled to my stomach. I smelled smoke and heard a thump in the dirt a few feet ahead of me. The sound of gunfire roared in my ears as we returned fire. We had no idea where the shot had come from, so each one of us took our best guess and fired in that direction. We knew we wouldn't hit the shooter, but we had hoped to scare him off. I decided to hold my fire in order to cover my comrades as they reloaded their weapons. When the gunfire stopped, I watched carefully the nearby houses. A quick movement by a roadside fence caught my eye, and I quickly shot off a couple of rounds in the dark mass. At least one of my shots must have landed because whatever it was fell to the ground unmoving. By now, my fellow soldiers had finished reloading, and so I ejected my magazine and slowed a new one into its place. We were still for some time waiting for more fire. When it never came, Ivan came up to a crouch and quietly walked over to the corpse. He felt a pulse, and then he returned to us. Yes, we got him, he said in his eyes. I saw something I hadn't seen before, kind of deep sadness and regret. No matter how hard I pushed, he would not tell me why. We stood and casually walked over to the house where the shooter had come from. Ivan knocked on the door. We waited a moment, and Ivan firmly kicked the door down. Or, Ivan firmly planted his foot on the floor, rearing to kick the door down when a shotgun blast blew through the door. Jesus. Ivan fell to the ground, riddled with buckshot, so we returned fire through the door, then swiftly beat it down with the stocks of our rifles. Inside, broken glass littered the floor and the bullet holes scattered along the walls. On the ground was a young woman, shot fatally four times. In her hand was the shotgun that killed Ivan. We had had more than enough of this village, so we ransacked the house, throwing over tables and filling our pockets with valuables. And when we had finished, we threw gas lamps on the floor and tossed matches on the pooling liquid, so we left the house burning down. It was only once we were outside again that we heard the wailing. By then, the flames had taken firm hold of the house, and it was too late to re-enter the building for fear of our lives. The mother had hidden her baby before turning to fight us, and we hadn't found it before torching the house. Fuck. The wails continued for just a few minutes before falling silent among the crackling flames. A man burst from a building down the street and sprinted towards us, screaming in German. Our translator stared at him, and when we raised our rifles, he held his hand up to stop. The German man shoved past us and up to the burning building. He hesitated briefly at the doorway before sprinting through, and he never came back out. By the time the fire died, we couldn't see it anymore. The rest of our mission went by in silence, and we doubled back to where we came. We found people standing in the street staring at us. Some were angry, some were sad, but most just stared blankly. I still see it tonight, today in my nightmares. When we passed the house, I stopped. I announced to no one in particular that I had to take a piss. 
No one believed it, but that didn't matter. I stepped into the shell of the house we had destroyed. There on the floor of the bedroom, I saw the skeleton of a man crushed under a wooden beam, a smaller collection of misshapen bones in his arms. In the yard by the fence, I saw a little boy with a toy gun dressed in the oversized uniform of a German soldier. Jesus Christ. That night, we all had nightmares. The man with his wild eyes told each of us that he would be back for us, one after the other, and the next day, we laughed it off together. Uh, we had thrown ourselves into our duties. We had fought hard not to think about the screaming man and the wailing baby. One by one, as the years went by, we all started to die. Here, one of us fell from a tower we were constructing. There, an aggressive form of cancer that suddenly appeared in the brain. Never obvious, but always suspicious. Because we knew. We all knew this was happening, and why it was happening. When there were two of us left, just Yosef and I, he had come to visit me. When he had knocked, I thought my time had come, but I should have known I would be last. He's coming for me, Yosef said. It's my time now. I would have liked to console him, to assure him it was all a coincidence, but we both knew better. And that night, Yosef cried on my shoulder and I on his. I'm so sorry, he had sobbed, I didn't know. The next day, he shot himself in his apartment. That was a week ago, so now it's my turn. I know he's coming. Every night in my sleep, he gazes into my eyes and smiles. Every night he smiles a little bigger, and last night he began to speak, quietly. It was so quiet I couldn't hear what he was saying, other than to make out that he's speaking. I don't want to hear what he has to say, because I cannot sleep tonight. I will stay up as late as possible, and before I sleep, I'll climb to the roof and stand on the edge. I must. I cannot know what he'll say. The shot at us, the woman killed Ivan. We couldn't have known about the baby. We were just eliminating the resistance, and that's all. We were only following orders. Only following orders. Oof. God. Your ringtone defines who you are and how much money you have. So take bling to the next level with Audio Bling. It's VIP luxury ringtones. Show the world how dope you are by blaring something unique. VIP luxury ringtones, including extreme tones like the sound of money being counted. That's million dollar bills being counted, B. How about a ringtone of a private jet? A person being beheaded. Or diamonds. A old bitch falling and breaking her hip. <gasps> wow, that's dope. VIP luxury ringtones. Only 100 bucks. Be an individual. Get a VIP luxury ringtone today. Visit VIPLuxuryRingtones.com Now I know according to my user demographic that or my listener demographic, rather. The majority of you guys are young bucks and young dudes and dudettes, but uh, that hundred buck price is pretty, it's not unreasonable compared to what they were asking for text messages. Like what they were, let me back up. Back in the day, back in the days of dial-up internet and whatnot, which I'm certain the majority of my listeners have no idea what that is, um, they used to charge 10 cents a letter for text messaging and they would charge like 15 20 bucks for stupid midi renditions of popular songs and uh the ringtone thing was definitely was definitely a thing for a while i never paid 100 bucks but it was certainly a highly desirable website that would provide the service of letting you download it for free if you were tech savvy enough to figure out how to get it the fuck on your phone which I was not till later 
Anyway, this next one is called I Found a Box of Letters in My Dead Parents' House by Logan Finch. I've spent 30 years in Birmingham. Here, everyone is haunted by something. Sometimes I'm questioning what I'm doing with my life. Should I leave and look for a new change of scenery, or should I stay and try to get all my life back together? My parents were retired doctors, and they were in great shape for people in their 60s. They died recently when I found out I didn't sleep for a few days, or eat. They were on their way to Italy for vacation an hour into their flight. The plane crashed in the Adriatic Sea, and everyone on board died. The media ran stories that the crash was caused by pilot error, but that couldn't be true. Black box audio is usually made public, but the audio for the Birmingham Airline Flight 1357 was never released and kept from the public. Deep on the web, theories came flooding in like water through a broken dam. Despite the best efforts of the government to sweep the matter under the rug, the families of everybody who died on board, myself included, demanded answers, and at first we didn't get any. That is, until the audio was leaked. The audio started off normally, the pilot having ordinary conversations, until they both noticed something, and the next 30 seconds of audio was completely silent. Suddenly, the two pilots started confessing all their sins, and the last three minutes of the recording were only screams of the passengers. There was something one of the pilots said that really disturbed me. I was barely able to make it out over the heavy turbulence, but I did it. I shouldn't have left my baby in that hot, locked car. I'm so sorry, he said. What the fuck are you fucking stupid? As strange as the recording was, I decided to move on and forget the theories I read online because it didn't matter, pilot error or not, my parents were both dead. Two weeks later, I held a mock funeral because I was the only one there because I was the only, only family left. It was up to me to get their house cleaned up and ready to sell, and I was not looking forward to the probate process. As I pulled into the driveway, the house stood before me, a shadow of what it used to be. What was once a lush, well-kept lawn was now overgrown with dry yellow grass. Thankfully, the house and second garage across from it were made of brick. I feared to imagine what shape they'd be in if they hadn't been built with such material. Brush was piled into an old rusty dog cage across from the garage. What? <laughs> okay. As I walked up the path, childhood memories flashed through my mind. Dad tossing the ball to ten-year-old me, mom helping me walk the dog around the house when I was twelve. Are you fucking stupid? The memories quickly faded, and reality sunk in, as that I would never be able to make memories with them again. Until that point, I thought I was over everything. My knees buckled and I dropped to the ground, like Willem Dafoe in Platoon. <sighs> Tears streamed down my face and I couldn't control it anymore. My parents were gone forever and nothing could change that. I took a few deep breaths and counted to ten. After my breathing exercises, I felt a bit better. Okay. I picked myself up off the floor and entered the house. It was eerie being in the house for the first time in years. Inside of the house didn't look abandoned. A uh, part of me felt like mom and dad were still in the bedroom or living room. It was like what I imagined being inside of one of the houses of Chernobyl to be like. Apparently it was abandoned, I, although he didn't really explain that. Everything inside looked as it did the day it was abandoned. Well, they died. They don't live there anymore, stupid fuck. Cans and boxes of food were still in the cabinets, and yet no shit. Mouse shit was on the floor. The smell of mold and mildew was strong. So strong I could taste it. Yeah, you fucking idiot. How many years had it been? I held my breath and trudged to the bedrooms to look for my parents' financial information. After a few minutes of rummaging through their shit, I found the paperwork along with something else box of letters I'd never seen before, written by people I've never met or heard of. Oh, for fuck's sake, doesn't your mom have a fucking diary or something you can read to?
Fuck you. Letter number one, November 14th, 1989. Well, this is weird. Dear Uncle Tony, happy birthday, Uncle Tony. Love is not something you can see. Love is something you can feel deep in your heart. And I love you, love Lorraine. Strange. The letter's addressing my father, but he and my mother didn't have any siblings, so why lie? Did he have a falling out, and as a result, he didn't want anything else to do with his family? I don't know. Sounds like you and your parents had a falling out, slick. November 21st, 1989. Dear Uncle Tony, I really like staying over and spending time with you and Uncle Uncle Pam. Aunt Pam. I love staying up past my bedtime to watch cartoons and eat chocolate chip cookies. At bedtime, it really scared me when I heard tapping on my window, so I covered myself in my blanket and turned over, but the tapping continued Lorraine. Mom's chocolate chip cookies were my favorite thing in the world when I was a kid, and I'll never taste them again. All right, buddy. Number three, November 28th, 89. Dear Uncle Tony, I had lots of fun building snow forts with you and Aunt Pam last weekend. I had more fun when I caught both of you by surprise and nailed you with snowballs. It was fun until bedtime when the tapping on the window started again. And this time I couldn't help but turn over. I saw a monster at my window and started feeling really guilty and sad as I stared at him. There's something mesmerizing about that ting at the window. Unable to look away, I started remembering all sorts of the bad stuff I did, like breaking mom's vase and lying about it, so on and so forth. I smashed my head against the wall to make the thoughts stop. Heard that? Heart Lorraine. Letter number four, December 4th, 89. To Tony. I'm happy to let Lorraine spend the weekend over at your house, your family after all, and I want her to know her uncle and aunt, but you and Pam have, you and Pam have really been there for Lorraine, and I, ever since Rick abandoned us a few years ago, okay, but Lorraine came home Sunday with a bruise on her forehead. Please make sure you keep an eye on her when she's playing. Susan. Sad. I had a friend whose father abandoned them when they were young. Life hasn't turned out well for them either. <sighs> okay. December 8th, 89. Dear Uncle Tony, I'm really looking forward to spending Christmas with you. Thank you for buying me a Barbie. I love her so much. How does she know that you bought her a Barbie if Christmas hasn't happened yet? Son. Uh, I played with her till that monster showed up. I saw him and started feeling guilty like last time. I remembered when I was a kid at school. I told the kid at school that yellow snow was the same as a snow cone and he ate it. I smashed my head again and this time it really hurt. Wah. is not good December 18th 89 dear Pam for whatever reason Tony hasn't bothered to listen to me I'm looking forward to having Christmas with you but Lorraine got a bigger bruise on her forehead how is she getting hurt so fucking often Susan okay Susan you're an imbecile letter 7 January 1st 1990 dear Pam I really appreciate you and Tony having us over for the holidays but there's something really odd that happened when I was there I was awakened by a knock on my door Lorraine was crying and telling me that someone was tapping on the window I walked into the room she was staying in, and at first I thought there was something at the window, but chalked it up to my imagination since I was still half asleep. Clearly, no one has listened to a word I've said. I do not think I can allow Lorraine over your house. If you continue to ignore me, I'll allow both of you one more chance, but I do not want to have to do this. But if you force my hand, I will do what I feel is best. Wow, you move at a snail's pace, woman. Letter 8, January 4th, 90. Dear Uncle Tony, I really enjoy seeing you and Aunt Pam, but I don't know if I want to come over anymore. I couldn't sleep last time. I'm really scared. Yawn. Letter 9, January 7th, 1990. Dear Tony and Pam, I cannot allow Lorraine at your house. When she got home from your last visit, she said she never wanted to go back and wouldn't stop crying. I don't know what happened, but she's not going to go to your house anymore. I'm furious that my rules were not obeyed. How dare you undermine me? 
I think you know how Lorraine got hurt too, and I'm starting to think it wasn't an accident due to your negligence. Susan. Letter 10, February 1st. Dear Tony and Pam, how dare you try and play the victim? You want me to reconsider? No way. If you guys didn't hurt Lorraine, then how come you can't at the very least admit that the both, both of you are negligent caretakers? How dare you throw it in my face, all the things you did for, for Lorraine financially, emotionally, or otherwise? Don't try to spin me a sob story. Lorraine is the daughter I'll never have. Cry me a river. Also, never throw my condition in my face again. I've been just fine mentally, and I've been taking my medication. My illness has nothing to do with your decision-making. I laughed when I read the part of your letter when you mentioned you were afraid for the child's well-being because I'm unwell. Don't ever threaten me. You will never see Lorraine or me again as long as you live. Ugh. Nice. It looked to be the end of the letters. I needed answers, so I searched the house for any additional letters but found nothing, so I gave up. Feeling defeated, I pulled myself together, grabbed the paperwork I needed, and headed home. During the ride, I felt like something was following me. I ascribed the feeling to being on edge due to the letters. I pulled into the driveway of my home feeling empty. My house was a mess. Not as bad as my parents, but still a mess. Well, you fucking live there, you goddamn fucking slob. It better not look like an abandoned house. The lawn was unkempt and the paint was peeling on the front porch, as well as on both sides over the house, indicating a new paint job was needed. Oh, is that the indication? The fucking peeling paint? Would you live under a fucking bridge? What's wrong with you? not like it really mattered anyway. No one was going to visit me. Yeah, you sound like a fucking slob. You sound like a hoarder. I was alone. My mailbox was overflowing with a thick stack of mail. I removed it and headed inside. Yeah, man, you can burn it for firewood, for fucking warmth. Jesus, put it in a trash can and burn it in your living room. A few days worth of dishes were piled in the sink. It's okay, man. You don't have food to cook anyway. And the trash cans were crammed full of fast food bags. You're disgusting. Ever since the death of my parents, I've been barely taking care of myself. I threw my letters down on the table inside, nothing but bills and shit. Well, I hear that. There was nothing to look forward to anymore, so I dragged myself to bed and lay down, and as my eyelids became heavier and I was about to drift off to sleep, I had the feeling somebody's watching me. I heard an ominous tapping sound on my window, but didn't dare to turn over to see what was causing the noise. Um, that's a fucking stupid fucking story. Jesus Christ, what a waste of my fucking time. Stopping global warming has finally gotten cool. Street style meets environmental concern with this seriously bad, morally good, fully customizable luxury VIP style hybrid sedan. The Karen Dilettante. Expensive, but the earth is worth it. She'll swoon at your low exhaust emissions and maybe let you do a bit of exploring of her exhaust too. If you understand real bling, you can make it run on expensive champagne and fine cigars. Save the planet for only $39,999. The Karen Dilettante. Bad plus good equals better for everyone. Oh, yeah. Nothing gets me fired up like a fucking Prius. Uh, gross. Ugh, ick. That's what I say. Fucking ick. Alright, this one totally sold me on the name. Also, extremely highly rated. And also, the picture, written by Travis Brown. This one is called The Whistler in the Night. Every night, no matter the weather, 
something walks down our street whistling. You can only hear it if you're in the living room or the kitchen when they walk by, and it always starts at 3.03. The sound is faint at first, somewhere at the beginning of the lane near the Carson place. We're more towards the middle of the streets. So the whistling moves past us before fading away in the direction of the cul-de-sac. When I was younger, my sisters and I would sneak into the kitchen some nights to listen, and my mom and dad didn't like that, and we'd catch hell if they found us there. Uh, but they were never too hard on us since we always stuck to the one big rule, and that was don't try to see whatever was whistling. My neighborhood is a weird place. I've lived here since I was six, and I love it. The houses are small but well-kept with good-sized yards, plenty of places to explore. There are a ton of other kids my age. I turned 13 in October. We grew up together, and would always play four square in the cul-de-sac or roam around from the back porch to porch in the summer. This was a good place to grow up, and I'm old enough to see it. And there's only two strange things here, the night whistling and the weird good luck. The whistling never bothered me that much, and like I said, I couldn't even hear it from my bedroom. But Mom and Dad don't like talking about it, so I've stopped asking questions. My dad's a strong guy, tall and calm. He has an accent since he moved to the U.S. as a kid. His family, my grandparents, they're from the islands. That's what they call it. My dad, the only time he isn't calm is when the whistler comes up. He talks a little quicker when it comes up. His eyes move faster, and he tells us not to think about it so much, and to always remember this one rule, the big rule, don't try to look outside when he goes past. Not that we could look even if we wanted to, because there's shutters on the inside of every window that pull down from the top and latch to the bottom of the window frame. Each latch even has a small lock about the size of what you find on a diary. My dad locks those shutters every night before we all go to bed and keeps the key in his room up his ass. My mom, I don't know what she thinks about the whistling. I've seen her out in the living room before at 3.03 when the sound starts. I can see her if I crack my door open just an inch to peek. She's not out there often. At least I haven't caught her much, but once or twice a month, I think she sits out there on our big red couch listening. The Whistler has the same tune every night. It's cheerful. I'm not going to read the fucking him trying to phonetically sound out the whistling. Remember how I said that there are two odd things about where I live? Well, besides our night whistler, everybody in my neighborhood is obscenely lucky. It's hard to explain, and my dad doesn't like us talking about this part much either. But good things just seem to happen to us and to the people around here a lot. Usually it's small things, winning a radio contest, getting an unexpected promotion, finding arrowheads in the backyard, you know, that weird authentic kind of luck. The whistler is pretty good and there's no crime. Uh, the, oh, not the whistler. The weather is pretty good and there's no crime. And everybody's gardens bloom extremely bright in the fall. A million little blessings I've heard my mom say about living here, but the main reason we stay here is when we moved here in the first place, my sister Nola, she was born very sick, something with her lungs. We couldn't even bring her home when she was born. We could only visit her in the hospital. She was so small. I remember small even compared to the other babies. A machine had to breathe for her. We moved into our house here to be closer to the hospital, and as soon as we moved out, Nola started getting better. The doctors couldn't figure it out. They chalked it up to whatever they were doing, but we all could tell that they were confused. But my parents knew the truth. Even I knew. Nola was getting better. It was just a million, one of the million little blessings we got for living in our neighborhood. So that's why we stayed, even after we found out that for a very small miracle, that things happen here every now and then, some bad things, but 
only if you go looking for the Whistler. Our neighborhood has a welcoming committee. They show up with macaroni casserole, a gift basket, and a manila folder whenever somebody new moves in. They're very friendly, and four people showed up when we moved in seven years ago. The committee made small talk, gave me a Snickers bar, and took turns holding Nola. It was her first week out of the hospital, so they were extra careful. Then the committee asked to speak to my parents in private, so I was sent to my room where I still managed to hear nearly every word. The welcoming committee told my parents about how nice the neighborhood was, really exceptionally. Hard to explain kind of nice. And then they told my parents about the even harder to explain whistling that happened every morning at 3.03 and ended at the tick of 3.05. The group of our new neighbors warned my parents that the whistling was quiet and it would never harm us as long as we didn't look for what was making the sound. This part they stressed and I pushed my ear into the door, straining to hear them. People who went looking for the whistler had their luck changed, sometimes tragically. A black cloud would hang out over anybody that looked. Anything that could go wrong would, and their lives fell apart. The manila envelope committee the, the, the manila envelope the committee brought over contained newspaper clippings, stories about car crashes, ruined lives, public deaths, freak accidents. Not everyone dies. I heard the head of the committee tell my dad, but the life goes out of them. Even if they live, there's no light in them ever again, no presence. I could tell my mom wasn't taking it seriously. She kept asking if this was some prank they played on the new neighbors, and at one point my mom even got angry and accused the committee of trying to scare us out of our new home and asked them if they were racist on the account of my dad being from the islands. My dad calmed her down, told her he could tell our new neighbors were sincere and that they were just trying to help. He explained that he grew up hearing these kinds of stories from his mom and that he knew there were strange things that walked among us. Some of those strange things were good, some were bad, but most were just different. After the committees left, my dad went out to the hardware store, bought the canvas blinds, the latches, the locks, and installed them on every window in the house after dinner. That first night in our new home, I crept out of my room at three, only to find my dad awake sitting in the living room couch holding my sister. My dad held up a finger in the shh motion, but patted the couch next to him, so I sat and we waited. At 3.03, we heard the whistling. It came and went, just like our neighbor said. The whistler whistling returns each night, and we never look... And we enjoy our million little blessings every day. Nola breathes on her own, and she's grown into a strong, clever girl. My dad even joined the welcoming committee. We don't get new neighbors here often. Why would anybody want to leave? But when a new family does move in, my dad and the committee bring them macaroni casserole, a gift basket, and a manila folder. I can always tell by the look on my dad's face when he comes back if the family took the committee seriously or if we'd be getting new neighbors again very soon. Not long ago... A family moved in directly next to us. The previous owner, Miss Maddie, passed away at 105. She'd lived a good, long life. Our new neighbors seemed like they'd fit in just fine. They believed the welcoming committee took my dad's advice about the locking shutters since they had a young child. Uh, whatever newspaper clippings were in that minimal envelope, whatever evidence, my dad never let us see. But I imagine it must have been awfully convincing since our neighbors got along with no issues for the first month. One night, when our neighbors, our new neighbors had to leave town, they sent their son Holden to stay with us. He was 12, a year younger than me in school. I didn't know him well, uh, not before that night at least, but as soon as his parents dropped him off after dinner, I could tell it was going to be a bad time. Do you know who's always out there whistling every night? Holden asked the moment the adults left the room. The three of us were sitting in the den and some Disney movie was on the TV. My sister and I looked at each other. We don't talk about that, bro, I said. I think it's weird. I think it's that weirdo that lives in the big yellow house on the corner, Holden said. Mr. Tolls? My sister asked. No way, he's really nice. 
Holden shrugged. Must be a psycho killer, then. Nola tensed. We don't talk about it, I repeated. Let's go to my room and play Nintendos. We spent the next few hours playing games, eating popcorn and watching movies. Typical sleepover, but I could see Holden was getting antsy. After my parents had wished us goodnight, locked the blinds, and gone to bed, Holden stood up from his beanbag and walked over to where Nola and I were sitting on my bed. Have you ever tried looking? It's nearly time. Like most sleepovers, we conveniently ignored any suggestion of a bedtime, and I was shocked to see that he was right. It was almost 3 a.m. I sighed. We don't... See, I can't. I can't even try to look because my dad locks the blinds every night and hides the keys. He continued, ignoring me. So does our dad. No. No, he doesn't. You saw him do it, I said, a little sharper than I meant to sound. Holden grinned. Your dad locks the blinds, yeah, but he doesn't hide the key. He keeps it right on his normal keychain. So, I asked, worried I already knew what he would say next because I had noticed that my dad didn't bother hiding the key anymore after all these years because he knew we took it seriously. So after your dad locked up, but before your parents went to bed, I went to the bathroom and on the way I may have peeked in their room and I may have seen your dad's keychain on his nightstand. I maybe went and borrowed the keys to the blinds. Nola and I stared and his grin only got wider. You're lying, I said. You can check if you want. Just open your parents' door and you'll see his keychain right there on the nightstand. Stay here, I told both of them. Don't move. I hurried over to my parents' room, but hesitated at the door. If Holden wasn't lying, my dad would be pissed, beyond angry. I was scared thinking about it, but more scared of an open window with the whistler outside. I opened the door, barely an inch, and looked in, but it was too dark to see. Taking a deep breath, I walked into the room. You're partying with some friends. After three days of smoking ice and swapping partners, a man's got to get some shut-eye. Maybe you left the gas oven on or fell asleep smoking a cigarette, and next thing you know, boom! You're homeless and wanted for manslaughter. Not with VIG Insurance. Call one of our claim representatives immediately, and we'll deal with the law and forensics and get rid of any unfortunate evidence or unwanted allegations. You've just lost a home and some close friends. Why lose your freedom? VIG Insurance. Because freedom equals peace of mind. I hurried to my parents' room. Two steps into the dark, I froze. The whistling started, and I could hear it clearly from my parents' room. I never realized... But they must have heard the sound every night since we moved into that fucking place. They never told us, but I don't think I could have slept through it. I stood there listening to the whistling come closer, unsure whether I should turn on a light or call out for my daddy. Soft sounds from the living room brought me back to reality. Nola, I yelled, running out of my parents' room. Holden and Nola were standing near the front door next to a window. Holden wasn't lying. I could see him fumbling with the lock on one of the blinds. I heard a click. He, didn't, he did have the key. Holden let out a quick laugh, and Nola stood next to him, hunched up, afraid, but maybe curious. The whistling was right outside our house now. I think I made a sound, called out, I can't remember. Time felt frozen, clock hands nailed to the face, but I found myself moving. I'm not fast, I've never been athletic, but somehow I covered the space between myself and Nola in a moment, and my eyes were locked on her. But I heard Holden pull the blind all the way down, so it could be released. I heard the snap as it started to raise, and I heard the whistling just on the other side of the window. But I had my arms around Nola and I turned us so that she was facing away from the window. At the same time, I jammed my eyes shut, and the blind whipped open. The whistling stopped. I felt Nola shaking in my arms. Don't look. Don't turn around. We were positioned so that she was facing back towards the hallway, and I was facing the window. My eyes were still closed. 
felt her nod in my shoulder. I reached out with my arm, not holding Nola, to try to touch Holden. My hand brushed against his arm, and he was shaking worse than Nola. Holden, I asked. Silence. I reached past him and gingerly felt for the window, eyes still sealed shut, but the glass was cold against my fingers. Colder than it should have been for this time of the year. I moved my hand up the window, searching for the string of the blind. The glass had began to get warmer, and the farther I reached, and there was a gentle hum feeding back into my fingertips. I tried not to think about what might be on the other side of the window, so finally I touched the string and yanked the blind shut. I opened my eyes, and the dim light leaking out from the kitchen, I could make out Holden, pale and small, staring at the closed window. Holden, I asked again. He turned toward me, towards me and screamed. Everything became a flurry of motion. Lights turned on in the hall. Then in the living room, my parents' footsteps stuttered across the hardwood floors. I turned to look back at them, but my eyes were glued to Holden. He was pale. It bit his lips so hard there was a thin, red line of blood running down his chin, and he'd pissed himself. Coward. What happened, my dad asked from behind me. I managed to swivel away from Holden and look back. He looked. I'd never seen my dad scared before, but I saw it that night, and in that moment, an old, ugly terror stitched on his face. The parents' fear. Just Holden? He mouthed to me. I nodded yes. My dad breathed easier. He looked so relieved I nearly expected him to cheer. But then he turned to Holden and my dad's face changed. I wonder if he ever felt bad for feeling good that Holden was the only one that looked. And then there was a knock at the door. We all froze. Holden whimpered. Don't answer it, my mom said. She stood at the threshold of the hall, and I always thought she was a skeptic and just humored my dad about the windows and the whistler. But that night, we were all believers. I noticed that both of my parents held baseball bats that they must have taken from their bedroom. The knock came again, a little louder this time. Please, don't open the door, Holden whispered. My dad walked over to him, hugged him close. We won't, my dad promised, still holding his bat. Nothing is coming in here tonight. Knocks on the door again. This time the knocking was loud enough to rattle the door. Holden screamed again, and Nola clutched her arms around my neck. My mom came over and knelt down next to us, wrapping my sister and me close. Call the police, my mom whispered to my dad. The knocking instantly stopped. My dad just looked over his shoulder. Do you think? He was cut off by frantic knocking that trailed off to a polite tap, 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 tap. Police, something said on the other side of the door. The voice from the outside sounded exactly like my mom, like a parrot repeating the words back to her. Police, call the police. Knock, knock, knock. Police. The woman pulled us closer. Police, police, police. Police, stop, I heard her whisper to herself. I don't think calling them will help, my dad said. How will we know when they're the ones at the door? The knocking came back harder than before. The door shook. Then it stopped. After a long moment, I heard the knocking again, but it was coming from the back door. We all turned together towards the back door, but the knocking was immediately returned to the front. Front to back, back to front, loud and quiet, and loud, loud to quiet. Suddenly, the sound was coming from both doors at the same time. Big, heavy blows like a sledgehammer. Then something started rapping against all of the windows of the house, then the walls. It's like we were living in a drum with a dozen people trying to play it at once. Or we were a turtle and something was attempting to claw us out of our shell. Stop! Holden yelled. The knocking died. I won't tell, Holden said, staring at the door. I, I promise I won't tell what I saw. Just please, leave me alone. We waited for nearly a minute, and then we heard it. It was a soft tap coming from the window Holden had looked through earlier. Holden started to cry, sobbing like a prisoner watching gallows being built outside their cells. My dad held him, brushed his hair, but never lied to him, never told him things would be okay. The tapping at the window went on for the rest of the night, and we huddled together in the living room for I don't know how long. And eventually my mom tried to take us kids into my room, and my dad stayed to watch the door. But the second we moved to my bedroom, the knocking came back, so loud it was impossible to ignore, and I was afraid that our, 
our door couldn't take it. We went back to the living room and it stopped. Only the tapping on the window remained, and none of us slept that night. The tapping stopped around 7. That's about the time the sun comes up around here. We waited another two hours before my dad opened the blinds from one window, made us all go back to my parents' bedroom, and I heard him open the door, then come back in. Okay, he told us, it's done. Holden's parents came back around lunchtime, and my dad and my mom walked Holden over to his house, and they all went inside for quite a while. Nola and I watched from the window. She stuck to me the whole day right by my side, sometimes holding my hand even. When my parents came back, they looked grim but wouldn't tell us what they'd said to Holden's family. It was Sunday, and so we all spent the day together. We ordered pizza, and we watched movies. That night, everybody slept in my room. Nola and my mom in the bed. My dad in a chair. He pulled over. Uh, there was no knocking that night, or any night since. We don't see much of Holden or his parents for the rest of the week, but by Thursday, they were, there was a moving truck in the driveway, and Nola and I watched them packing up the whole afternoon after school. What sticks to me most is how tired Holden and his parents looked. All three had the same pallor, grim mouths and lightless eyes. Even from across the street, I could tell something was very wrong. Holden and his family were gone before sunset. I remember what the original welcoming committee said to my parents when we moved in. Not everyone who looks at the Whistler dies, but even those that live have the light go out, and the rest of their lives are misfortunate. Filled with misfortune, a million little tragedies... I think Holden's parents must have looked, either to comfort him if they didn't believe or share the burden if they did. I don't know. I watched Nola sometimes, happy and young and alive, and I wonder if I'd been slower if she'd looked out the window that night. What would I have, would I have looked to, just to comfort her? To share the burden? I'm glad I don't have to find that out. It's been two months since the last night Holden stayed here. We still live in that house, in that neighborhood. We still hear our whistler walking past every night. The blessings of luck, the good things here are too good to leave, but we're careful. We don't have friends over to spend the night anymore, and my dad hides the key to the blinds very, very well. Not that I've gone looking. Some things you don't need to look for. What? Remember the drama. I blew 18 guys. I'm a star. You going down, bitch. Remember the joy. I won the street walking section. That's right, but I've got bad news. The condom broke. You're gonna die. You're off the show. Remember the tears of shame. America's next top hooker is coming back to CNT. It's the show that makes women shake what they've got and leaves them feeling inadequate. We'll never forget this. Yo, bitch, you better make me my money. It's America's next top hooker, the reality show that finally judges women purely on their true merits. The Liberty Tree says this moves feminism into a different century. Nobody's a better hoe than me. All you hookers is dead. America's next top hooker, coming soon to CNT. Can reality TV ever get any better? I feel like even with that slogan, that commercial is just an advertisement for fucking Tinder. Alright. This is going to be our last show of the... Or our last story of the reading. And this is from Reddit. I don't think I've read this on the show before, so I may have heard it on another podcast. But I read this story or heard it some, somewhere, and I... Uh, I have read this one before, disclaimer, because this one was very impressive to me, and it fucked my head for probably a week. So I'd love to hear what you guys think at the end of the show. Uh, 
And it's titled, My Student Submitted the Most Disturbing Living History Project I've Ever Fucking Seen. One of my least favorite parts about being a middle school history teacher is the bullshit living history assignments we give at the end of every school year. Kids are supposed to sit with their grandparents and videotape, voice record, or transcribe their oldest memories for posterity, and for an easy way to bring up their GPA. I've been doing this for 17 years, and when I collected the project this time around, I assumed they would be as dull, if not duller than usual. This had not been a particularly bright class. So I went home, poured myself a glass of wine, and prepared for a long night of... I only owed, owned two pairs of pants when I was your age, and... My brother got beat with a newspaper for hitting a baseball into a neighbor's yard. And, of course, these projects were peppered with the innocent, old-person comments that were so horribly sexist and racist you just had to laugh. Now, I had a girl in my class who I will call Olivia. She was fat, quiet, and proved herself to be a consistent C or B student. I expected her project to be as unremarkable as she was, and perhaps that's why I was so profoundly disturbed by what I witnessed that night. Olivia had submitted two discs for some reason. So I began with the one marked Interview. My screen hiccuped twice before a grainy image of a living room came into view. The place was a hoarder's hell. Olivia was curled up in an armchair, clutching a notebook and looking like a scared little animal. Across from her sat a man with a somber countenance, smoking a cigarette and staring at her expectantly. Go ahead, a woman's voice whispered from behind the camera. Olivia's owlish eyes flashed towards the screen, then back to the man. I'm here with my great-uncle Stephen. She began almost inaudibly. He's going to tell us about his oldest memories from being in the army. Great-uncle Stephen looked like he'd rather be in a goddamn trench at this moment, but he waited patiently for the questions to begin. Not surprisingly, Olivia read verbatim from the suggested question seat I'd handed out to the students. He answered her curtly. Once or twice I heard her mother whispered, Speak up, Olivia, from behind the camera. Typical boring dog shit. So I was intrigued when Olivia set down the notebook and asked, Did you like being in the army? That was totally off script. Script. Great Uncle Stefan emitted a chain smoker's wheeze. Nope. Glad to get out of my town, though. Where did you go? Balkans. Mm-hmm, she said. I doubted she knew what the Balkans were, and my suspicion was confirmed when she said, Was Bacchus very different from here? Yes. Mom cleared her throat from behind the camera, perhaps encouraging Uncle Stephen to be a little more forthcoming, but Olivia seemed genuinely interested. Uncle Stephen, what's the very worst memory you have from the army? Oh, no. The old man crushed his cigarette in the ashtray and slowly lifted himself out of the chair. I'll be back, he mumbled, then the camera turned off. When the screen flashed back on, everything was the same, except Great Uncle Stephen had several pieces of paper in plastic sleeves laid atop all the shit that was sitting on his coffee table. One he held in his hand. I was a kid when I enlisted, he said, looking at Olivia. About your brother's age, he told her, and Olivia nodded. I never saw combat. Both of my deployments were to cities in Eastern Europe that had been destroyed by civil wars. Everything was a mess. I felt like a janitor, for fuck's sake. <clears throat> Mom coughed. Great Uncle Stephen sighed and looked at his paper. My unit was assigned to a school that had been obliterated by all the violence, broken windows, caved-in rooms, and for some reason, the part that got me the worst was that this school had been like this for years before we got there. No one had lift or lifted a finger to fix it. I saw kids walk by it on their way to go beg for money or whatever shit they did. 
The camera dipped towards the floor as I heard my mom whisper harshly, Great Uncle Steven. I couldn't make out what she was saying, but it wasn't hard to imagine. Do you want to hear the goddamn story or not? I heard him bark in response. Then you better let me tell it how I want. Mom, Olivia chimed, please stop interrupting. Are you presenting this in front of the class? No, Mom, we're handing it to the teacher. I'm sure he's heard the word shit before, Great Uncle Stephen contributed helpfully. I wasn't a he, as a matter of fact, but other than that, the statement was accurate. Thank you for clarifying. The camera was lifted, and after a couple of blurry focus adjustments, the shot was the same as before. I'm talking too much anyway. He lifted the piece of paper in his hand close to his face. In the basement, I found this letter. I don't know what it said, but I had a buddy of mine translate it, so I'm going to read it now, then I'll tell you what I saw in the basement. A chill ran down my spine. My mom zoomed in to Great Uncle Stephen in his letter. His palsied hands trembled as he held up the paper, and this is what it read. Dear Sir, I never loved my country. Some of these skirmishes are born from patriotism, a power struggle for the shards of a once great empire. But I do not care what name my home has on a map. This fighting is senseless and I stay as far away from it as I can. It was not these attacks and disorganized violence that took the lives of my wife and child. It was illness, mercifully. It happened quickly for the baby. Nadia suffered for longer. I watched in horror, knowing I could do nothing for them. My only solace is that I was there for them every step of the way. I stopped going to work one day and no one came after me. I doubt they noticed I was gone. Since the school was simply across the field, visible from my window, it would have been easy to go for a few hours each day, come home quickly, take care for them. But what was the point? All I did was clean the floor. I was as useless as to the world as I was to my family. I tried to take Nadia to the hospital, but the whole journey was long and taxing. I brought her home and then she died that night. After her and the baby were gone, I don't remember much. I didn't leave my hovel, barely slept, barely ate, but many times I thought of taking my own life, tempting though it was. I felt paralyzed by my own helplessness. The only thing that kept me sane was my radio. I never turned it off, even though I didn't listen to the words being said. <clears throat> Alright, enough of that. In fact, the channel I got, the clearest was English, I think, which I don't speak any of. But the voices, the music, and the true knowledge that life existed beyond this violent city of death sustained me. I have no idea how long passed before I saw the light of day again. I was so dizzy from hunger. Finding food was my priority. My radio came with me, of course. Since I first holed up, it has gone everywhere with me. It talks to me as I sleep and, and as I wake, and I don't know what it's saying, but I know that I probably would have died without it. Once I had some water and food, it occurred to me the only thing left to do was go back to work, so I did. And the following morning, I simply returned to the school where I was a janitor and got back to it. Nobody made a big deal out of it. And like I said, Nadia had been sick for a long time, and those who worked at the school knew it. I appreciated that nobody pestered me to come back to work during the hardest days of my life. The teachers never said a word to me, but we smiled at each other in the halls, and that mutual respect was perhaps the reason I decided to come back at all. The place had gone to the dogs without me, so I simply grabbed my broom and rags from my closet and set to cleaning. Everyone is grateful to have me back, I know. And the best part is that nobody minds my radio. I bring it with me everywhere and keep the volume low enough not to disrupt the students, and nobody's ever complained. In fact, it almost seems like they like it. The schoolhouse is not very big, but does require a lot of maintenance. The floors are always sticky and stained, so I spend most of my time mopping. Kids, I guess, make messes, but that's why I'm still in business. 
Sometimes I have to move things around to make sure I get every spot on the floor. Get it beautiful and clean because I take pride in that. And the repairs. Oh, the school always needs tune-ups here and there. I'm always happy to help. Some days I'm reconstructing a desk that broke as I whistle along with the radio. Other times I handle more serious structural issues. Days when I have work like this, I feel truly instrumental, like a cog in a big machine. How could this school survive without me? It took me a long time, but I did once again feel like I had a purpose. There is a larder behind the school that is full of preserved food. In lieu of payment, I'm allowed to take as much food as I need. The arrangement is fine. What would I do with money anyway? I used to bring the food back to my home just one field away from the school, but when I started sleeping in the basement, no one seemed to notice. This school is special to me, and I can't leave it unguarded. When I'm besieged with the memories of my wife and baby, I turn up the volume on that radio to drown out the thoughts, and it works for me every time. Except this morning, because this morning I woke up to dead silence. I frantically examined the radio to see what had happened. I honestly cannot tell you how many days in a row I've been using it. Did it simply live out its life and die naturally? I've spent the entire day trying to fix it, most of this time, I've been crying because I feel like I'm losing my mind without it. I have given myself until sundown. If I cannot fix it by then, I'm going to take my own life. I'm writing this because the sunlight is starting to die, and I know what my fate will be. I thought about taking one last walk through the halls of the school, saying goodbye to the teachers and students. I know I'll be missed, but I cannot bring myself to leave this room. Cannot go anywhere knowing that my radio is dead in here. There are no more tears in me. It feels now like I can't catch my breath. I vomited what little food I had in my stomach, and I'm growing dizzy again, like I did after Najee died. And I am not long for this world. But before I take my life, I've closed the door to this room and stuck a chair beneath the handle. It is the only room in the basement and has a small casement that lets in just enough light for me to see, light for me to see what I'm doing. If anyone is kind enough to come looking for me, they should, be, they should not be met with this gruesome sight. Perhaps they will see the doors blocked and smell my rotting bodily body and simply forget I ever existed. But I have placed both my radio and this note outside the door. Kind sir, if you're reading this, I have one more humble request. Please fix it. Save my radio. It did not deserve to die in its sleep, and I am ashamed that I cannot revive it. Now I'm ready to join Nadja and little Ludmia in heaven. I hope this school can find another janitor who loves and cares for it the way that I do. The hour is now. Please do not forget my radio. Stanislav. When my mom zoomed back out, Olivia had tears in her eyes. Thank you for sharing, Uncle Stefan, Mom said. Her voice was choked up. I think we've had enough. Wait, Olivia chirped. He said there's more. What did you find? Before great Uncle Stephen could open his mouth, the image disappeared and my jaw dropped. Was that it? What did great Uncle Stephen see? Michael Graves is at it again. He voted to raise taxes to pay for free condoms in schools. He's against abstinence and pro-underage sex. In 1968, John Hunter didn't go to Vietnam when his country needed him. But now, John Hunter sure likes to go to Vietnam and Cambodia on single men bachelor trips. He campaigned against repealing the amendments to our constitution that prevent the president from tracking terrorists. Michael Graves changes his mind more often than he changes his underwear, which is strange for a man rumored to be incontinent. Tell Michael Graves to get his hand out of your pocket and off your children's ass. Vote John Hunter for governor. 
promptly remembered that there was a second disc. This one was unmarked, but I hoped it contained the rest of the interview. There was no video, only audio. The voice that started up was Olivia. Hi, Miss Garrity. I'm so sorry about my mom, but she refused to record the rest of what my uncle was saying, but I asked him to continue and secretly recorded the story as a voice memo on my phone. I remember you said earlier this year that history is written by the people who win the wars. She sucked in a breath and commenced crying. But everyone's history is important, even if they're sad, pathetic people, and even if they never won a single thing in their life. I haven't slept through the night since I finished this project, but you have to hear what my uncle has to say. There were tears in my eyes, too. The sincerity of her words was beautiful. I was also flattered that she'd remember some trite phrase I threw around because it was what my history teacher said to me. Before I got too sappy over it, the audio again began. Fine, came Mom's frustrated voice. If you want to hear the rest of the story, fine, but this is not appropriate for a school project. Let me finish, bitch, Great Uncle Steven snapped. If it's too much for you, help yourself to a snack in the kitchen, but Olivia wants to know what happened. I heard my mom mumble something and walk away. Olivia and her uncle were alone. I imagined her looking at him expectantly. Did you find your radio? Did you find the radio? Or did it get ruined when the school got blown up? He rasped, and I heard a distinct click of a lighter. That letter, he began, had a date on it. What date, she inquired hungrily. It was dated two weeks before we started rebuilding the school. Didn't you say the school had been destroyed like two years ago? Yes, it had been, said Uncle Stephen. Oh, shit. There was silence as I felt the goosebumps raise on my arms. The images that came to my mind were almost too overwhelming to express, but Great Uncle Stephen put them into words effortlessly. Clearly, he had spent his entire life thinking about this. This man, this Stanislav, went to a vandalized, falling-apart schoolhouse and cleaned up blood and rubble like it was spilled drinks and dust. He smiled at dead bodies in the hallway and believed that they were smiling back at him because they liked his radio. He moved around the corpses so he could sweep the ground underneath them. The roof was half-collapsed, so when it rained, he must have gotten soaking wet, but was so oblivious that he didn't feel it. I could hear Olivia crying steadily. I found the larder he was talking about. It was all pickled preserved food that probably tasted like shit, and most of the stuff was moldy. Did you see the dead body? Yes. Hanging from the ceiling, but still amazingly lifelike. He wasn't rotting away. This hadn't happened years ago. Did he look peaceful? Uh, she asked with a chord of desperation in her voice. Couldn't tell you. The smell was rank, and his face was blue. His eyes were bulging. And the radio? Olivia wept. I heard Great Uncle Stephen. Stephen take a long drag of a cigarette. It was there, all right. And it wasn't broken, because it was still fucking on. Oof. God. You may value your privacy, but John Hunter doesn't. He wants to install a camera in your bedroom, so every time you jerk off, you have to pay $5. John Hunter voted to lower the marriage age down to 13. He wants to put your family at risk by outlawing 60 caliber full-auto assault rifles in domestically owned landmines. Call John Hunter. Tell him it's time to stop with the politics and the negative campaign ads. Tell him you're going to vote for Michael Graves for governor. Then call him a fat, bald prick and hang up the phone. Paid for by Michael Graves for governor. Well, that was just as fucking miserable as I remember it. But that was a good one. Oh, man. Holy fuck. And that will bring us to the end of this episode. Thank you all very much for tuning back in. I appreciate each and every one of you. If you would like to email me, you can do so by sending an email that says something in the title line of, Hey, fuckhead, or Dear Dipshit. Uh, 
I will get back to you as soon as I can. Due to my schedule, I'm pretty bad about getting back to emails in a timely fashion, but I will get back to you eventually, I promise. Uh, you can send your emails to springheeljackandanthologyofhorror.com. You can also check out a podcast player of this show exclusively with no ads, save the ones that I play at anthologyofhorror.com. At that website, you can also find the link to the Patreon. Uh, I don't know if you can find the email, but that's not terribly hard to remember. It's spring, as in springs, healed, as in part of your foot, the heel, and jack, as in jack-off, which I'm sure plenty of you guys are familiar with. Springheeljack at anthologyofhorror.com because I'm super fucking fancy. And for our last episode, let's go over top 10 countries, top 10 cities. Start with cities, though. Uh, Los Angeles has been on the uptrend ever since the fucking Tinder episode. You guys are dogs, all of you. Uh, <laughs> Los Angeles hadn't really been on the top 10 too high since, I don't know, let's say the last 10 episodes. But since Tinder, you guys have been number one. So thank you, oh, glorious hometown. Followed closely by Chicago, Illinois. Actually, tied evenly with Chicago, Illinois. Thank you again, Max. And then Dallas, Texas. Not even a percent behind, but one listener behind. Portland, Oregon. Port Blair, Andaman, and Nicobar. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry if I butchered those names. San Antonio, Texas. Atlanta, Georgia. Charlotte, North Carolina. Houston, Texas. Man, you guys are the best, too. Thank you, Texas. And Melbourne. That's a new one. Thank you, guys. Welcome to the top 10. Top 10 countries. U.S., U.K., India, Australia, Canada, Afghanistan, Philippines, New Zealand, <laughs> Cyprus, Uruguay. Well, I imagine that a decent amount of my listener base is probably part of the U.S. military as well. So thank you guys for your service and thank you for listening. Once again, I am taking all hate mail. Uh whatever, at anthologyofhorror.com. You can send the email to springheeljack at anthologyofhorror.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Please hit me up with your suggestions, comments, concerns. Um, no, I won't send you dick pics, but I will send you a response eventually. So, until next show, stay spooky, and thank you for tuning in.